Okay, now let's talk about Solomon's Jerusalem. So David had a son named Solomon. Um, uh, he made Solomon king over, over his kingdom. And Solomon is going to be the one to actually build the temple in Jerusalem. <coughs> so you've got this chosen land, a chosen people, a chosen temple. This, this theme of chosenness runs through the Israelite tradition and the Jew, modern Jewish tradition. Second Samuel 7, you have a promise. Eternal promise that there will always be a king in Jerusalem. Um, in Deuteronomy 12, this was God's chosen place. First Kings 6 and, 6 and 7 describe in detail the construction of the temple. And we're going to discuss in just a second how we have no remaining archaeological evidence of Solomon's <coughs> temple. So we, we have no evidence of it, right, archaeologically. We have a temple mount, and we have a literary description of it, but we have no hard evidence. And then we have this dedicatory prayer. So anytime you create a new building, you have like the ribbon cutting ceremony. <coughs> well, we have this ceremony where Solomon comes out and says this beautiful prayer of kind of dedication of the temple. This is where we're going to worship. This is what God has done for us. And this is why we built the temple, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, those of you Eliada fans, that this becomes, as we saw in the summary slide of, of the David lecture, um, this becomes kind of the axis of heaven and earth. Once they build that temple, that temple begins to assume the, the power. It becomes the magnet of all of these different stories, including the Ark of the Covenant. I think it's interesting that until Ezekiel mentions the Ark, once the Ark of the Covenant goes into the temple in Jerusalem, it, it's just not a big deal anymore. These guys would fight with and for this thing. They would follow it around. As soon as they put it in the temple, the temple kind of assumes all of the, of the power and the authority and the veneration that used to be with the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so it's the temple, a permanent people, a permanent house, the temple becomes the access for the people. Okay, um, I'm just going to put it up here. I'll just read you two lines out of it. Solomon in 1 Kings 8 has this dedicatory prayer. So he builds this temple, which we don't have time to go through. You can read it. You're writing the paper on the creation of the temple. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So again, here's this eternal promise. God will always live here in this temple. I have provided a place for the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. Okay, so this is his dedicatory prayer. Um, a couple of quick bio-sketch things for Solomon. Um, he was said to be wise King Solomon. Wisdom, and this word is played, played with a lot, um, is, is uh, talked about in 1 Kings 3, um, when you have, um, basically, God comes to him and says, what do you want? You know, I give you one wish, what would you like? And Solomon doesn't ask for gold or power, he asks for wisdom. And God is so impressed with the fact that Solomon chose, chose wisdom, that he gave him all the gold and silver and power anyway. Right, so that's the story. So you chose wisely. Remember, Indiana Jones? You've chosen four. Um, you also have the story of two women uh, who had babies. One of the babies died in the middle of the night, so one woman took the baby from the other newborn, from the other mom. And the other mom, of course, goes nuts and says, hey, you stole my baby. And they fought about whose baby the living baby was. And so they go to wise King Solomon. Anybody know the story? And wise King Solomon says, Bring me a sword. We'll cut the baby in half, and we'll give you each half of the baby. Right? And the story goes, maternal instinct. 
Um, the mom whose baby was not said, fine. Baby, her, her, her baby was dead, so now that baby will be dead. But the real mom says, no, 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 whatever you let her have. Whatever you do, don't keep her my baby. And Solomon says, you are truly the mother and hands it over. And it comes down as this, his as the wise judge, right? Solomon the wise judge. The other thing that we, we have uh, is, is uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 with the Queen of Sheba, right? The Queen of the Sporna has come to bask in Solomon's wisdom. Now, whether or not he basked in Solomon's wisdom with the 700 wives and 300 concubines, no. She was very impressed and he gave her some gold and she gave him some gold. So people are coming from far away to bask in Solomon's wisdom. Then, of course, you have the book of Proverbs, which is a lot of kind of uh, advice. Here's how you should live your life. Here's some good advice to live your life. You have the book of Kohelet, uh, or called, it's often called Ecclesiastes, which is an odd book for the Bible because it kind of goes against a lot of what the Bible teaches in, in one regard. The Bible always says, if you, you know, Deuteronomy, for instance, says, if you do what's right, God will bless you. If you do what's wrong, God will punish you. And Kohelet comes along and says, you know what? Righteous and the wicked, they all die. So live life to the fullest. And yet that's in the Bible, which is another class, another lecture. And then he said they've written the Song of Songs, which is the closest thing to pornography in the Bible. This is Bible porn. See, when I teach uh, intro to the Hebrew Bible, um, everybody shows up in this lecture. This is why you go to class. Dirty, dirty class. But it's just got some dirty, dirty things. And yet it made it in the Bible. So dirty, by the way, that a lot of the rabbis who were voting on which books of the Bible would be canonical and which books would be thrown out, they said they had to put it in there because it was said to be written by Solomon. But they said it soiled the hands. Just reading this book soiled the hands. And so it should not be read or should not be touched. They couldn't kick it out of the canon, but they could say, you probably shouldn't read it because it's dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I know all of you guys are going to be reading that. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much sexual innuendo in this talk in Aramite. It's just, it's really, it's really bad. And it's, it's written as if, I don't even know how to describe it anymore. I always say it's like a Bollywood, that final Bollywood scene where you've got all the guys over here. Have you ever seen Bollywood movies? And all the girls over here and they come doing their dancing across. And, and it's like all the guys on one side and the one guy who's in love comes out. And all the girls over here protecting the girl and she comes out. And then these guys will say something, and then she'll say something, and these guys will say something, and she'll say something, and the guy will say something. That's kind of how Song of Songs is written, but just dirtier. <laughs> and, and in Hebrew. So it's just as hard to understand. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, of course, we've already talked about the, the anointing of King Solomon, so we don't have to review that. So I'm going to blow through a couple slides here. Read Song of Songs tonight. By the way, um, we already covered all that. Um, most scholars will tell you today that Solomon did not, in fact, write Kohelet, Proverbs, or Song of Songs. Maybe a proverb, maybe one or two, um, but those books are written much later. But they're attributed to Solomon. Why? Because Solomon had this reputation of being wise. And Kohelet's a wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, they don't know what it is, right? And then, um, uh, and then uh, Proverbs is said to be uh, very wise. Um, let, me, let me do one more slide here, and I'll let you go. I want to leave you with this, and we'll pick back up here, and we'll do Hezekiah and Josiah on Thursday. What remains of Solomon's Jerusalem? Nothing. 
Now there's a few pieces of evidence, and we'll run, I'll show you them. But basically, you don't have the palace. You do have some excavations in the Ophel, just south of the Temple Mount. Where is Solomon's temple? You have no significant archaeological evidence of Solomon's temple. You have nothing substantive from the excavations on the Temple Mount, and of course now you can't dig up there. So we have nothing from there, which caused a bunch of scholars to say, you know what? I bet you there was no Solomon. And maybe there was no even David. There was even no David. It was probably the 9th century, not the 10th <coughs> century, but the 9th century. And if there was a David, he was just a little client king, or he was just a little uh, uh, tribal leader. Uh, Solomon, maybe, but they didn't have a power. And all of the stuff that we know about David and Solomon should be attributed to the 9th century, not the 10th century. And it's this idea of, is absence of evidence evidence of absence? If you can't prove something, does that mean it doesn't exist? If you can't prove the existence of God, does that mean there is no God? If you can't prove that there was a temple of Solomon, does that mean there was no temple of Solomon? And this is a debate that goes back and forth among scholars. It's not just talking about the existence of God, it's the existence of everything that we don't have evidence for. So we do have some evidence, and I'll show you that next week, but let this one wrestle in your mind. We have some scholars that have been vilified, completely vilified, as minimalists. Thomas Thompson, Bill Davies, uh, White Lung, Israel Finkelstein. Good, good scholars, but they, they came to the conclusion that there must not have been a Solomon because we don't have any uh, archaeological evidence. But the question is, is absence of evidence evidence of absence? And that's what we'll pick up next week. See you guys.